Children need protection and safety, particularly when they're young, because they don't have all the developmental skills to protect themselves. We're not born with spikes or or hard Mm -hmm. armors or any of those things. We like to sometimes think we're super powerful, but really we have very soft skin and our bones can break. And there's all kinds of things where we're physically vulnerable. And so the best power protection is each other. So when people take care of each other and are protective shields for each other, that's what really helps to buffer the stress of difficult things. Welcome to What's the 211 podcast, where we provide you with information about resources and programs in your community. 211 Maryland is a health and human service line for anyone seeking help for themselves or someone else. You can dial 211 if you need help with food, rent, or other services, or visit our website at www.211md.org. If you or someone you know needs to talk about their mental health or substance abuse, dial or text 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Welcome to What's the 211 Podcast. My name is Quentin Nascu, President and CEO, Maryland Information Network, and I am joined by our esteemed guest, Kate Connors. It's a licensed social worker, instructor, University of Maryland School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry, Project Director of the Baltimore Network of Early Services Transformation, and Executive Director of TAGI Madarisi Center for Infant Study. Kate, how are you? Oh, thank you, Quentin. It's so exciting to be here. I'm so excited about what 211 is doing for Maryland and glad to be a part of the show today. I appreciate it and definitely, definitely glad to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about Tagi Madaraisi Center for Infant Study Project and its affiliation with the University of Maryland School of Medicine? Dr. Madarasi was an innovator in infant and early childhood mental health and, and child and adolescent psychiatry. He immigrated from Iran and went to medical school at McGill University and then came down to Baltimore to establish his career. And so in 1982, he opened the Center for Infant Study with a very prominent guest in a symposium, including Eric Erickson and his wife, Joan Erickson, who are really the people that we still all study when we study uh, child development. And from there, people said, well, will you bring these services here to Baltimore? And we've pretty much been doing the same thing, which is providing early childhood mental health services, both in the clinic and in the community, and training people who want to know more about this work, including child psychiatrists, child psychologists, social workers, counselors, nurses, medical students. We have a robust campus here. And so we get to expose a lot of the amazing graduate students to this line of work. And then we get to work with people who are already graduated and in the field, supporting them in their careers as well. The Baltimore Network of Early Services Transformation is a project that we're really proud of. It's really a concept, and we really believe in a collaboration, bringing all kinds of voices into the process of change that supports families uh, with young children. 
And so it's really a way that we try to do the work. But we have been very fortunate to get some federal funding through the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration through a program they have called the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And that is a really transformative grant process. And we're very lucky in Maryland that we have several centers. And ours is the only one that really focuses on very young children. And so in that particular grant, we have been able to advance the availability of Healthy Steps, which is an evidence-based model uh, set in primary care. So it really is about preventing traumas, identifying traumas, and the negative impact that traumatic stress can have on young children and families, and really giving parents the information and the skills that they need to really get their kids off on a good start, despite maybe difficult things that have happened. It's very important you know, to start at early age, as you, as you mentioned. What kind of inspired you to specialize in this, in this field? And I mean, like a social worker and trauma oh, field. Gosh. It's a lot. I'm a Baltimorean, so I grew up here and my family's here. I come from a big Irish Catholic family. And in high school, I worked in Park Heights area at St. Ambrose Center as my community service. And Sister Charmaine was a social worker. And I was so inspired by the community-based work that she did that that's kind of what first introduced me to what social work was. And then, so I went on to school to become a social worker and social workers really look for social workers think of the art. We think of ourselves as change agents. So we try to develop skills in a certain area. So I picked the area of mental health, not just to become a therapist, but to also try to address the barriers that get in the way of children's mental health and also the things that get in the way of people having access to mental health services. And so social workers were kind of at the individual level, the family level, and the the greater community level. And so it's been a good fit for me and I'm just passionate about always learning. Uh, that's a really open field where there's so much innovation happening. I'm a fellow Baltimorean too, so I, I definitely <laughs> understand. So what, you know, we, I know there's, there's many definitions as we define kind of mental health and, and what it means to the individual. How, for you, what, how do you define mental health? Mental health is really central to health. You know, you can't really have good health without having good mental health. So I see them as intertwined and interconnected. And the way I would define it is that It's really about being able to regulate your thoughts, your feelings, your moods. It's also about being able to be in healthy relationships because that's really critical to your social health. I think we've all really gone through a period of big, significant isolation and and disruptions in the social network. So I think we can all feel how that important element of mental health is something to pay attention to. And then the last is, you know, that taking care of your emotional health and your social health really puts you in the place to be your best self. And so that you can do well in school or you can do well in work or you can uh, support your family or your community in ways that's meaningful. And with that definition, I guess mental health is everyone, right? Everyone yeah, has some, some type of mental health 
Yeah, let's talk a bit about some of the work with children, families, and communities that are impacted by trauma that, that you are very heavily involved with. So can you share some of those insights into the, you know, the landscape of mental health challenges you see and, and kind of the issues that folks who are seeking treatment? Yeah, I think that kind of at the the larger community level, it's been incredibly inspiring for, for me to hear people at all levels, politicians, newscasts, broadcasters, teachers, kids, parents, actually use the word trauma. I hear people say it and talk about it all the time, and they really know what they're talking about. And so when I started about 20 years ago, the T word was a word that people really shied away from. Maybe they would refer to it as shock trauma center, you know, something like that. But I think people are really, as we've had some shared traumas around social justice concerns, immigration issues, the pandemic, so public health concerns, I think people are embracing the idea and and really understand at a deep level that certain types of stress and certain amounts of stress are not good for people's health overall. And together we can do things about it, educate ourselves get some skills to manage the stress, support communities, stand up for people that might be disenfranchised. So at the community level, I see that. At the child and family level, I would say one barrier is still stigma. Stigma still gets in the way, both if parents have had concerns about their own mental health growing up, they might have experienced stigma and trying to get help or trying to talk about it. And so I think that still shows up, but I also see it show up in the positive way where parents say to us, this happened to me when I was a kid and I didn't get help and I want help for my kids. So I think, see that greater understanding uh, showing up, but I think combating stigma is something that we can all do together because it can really get in the way of people's recovery. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So before I get to the next question, I know you mentioned kind of the language and and using the word trauma. Should we folks be using trauma in a sense of describing some of the experiences? Have you heard kind of on both spectrums that, you know, we don't want to keep saying trauma because, you know, maybe that brings about the emotions or feelings or, you know, should that be the description of it actually what it is? That's a dilemma, I think, that we're still sorting through. One, I would say I wouldn't be flippant with the word trauma. You know, I would really only want to apply trauma to things that are frightening and fearful and overwhelming experiences. That's really the core definition of a traumatic event. All of us experience and have different effects related to those events. So the Substance Abuse uh, Mental Health Administration, they have a very, I think, very functional definition of trauma, which is the three E's. The event, so it's something frightening and overwhelming and dangerous. The experience, how did that individual, how did that family, how did that community experience the event, the frightening and overwhelming event or dangerous event? And then the last E is what are the effects? So it's going to affect all of us in some way, but the lasting effects might not be that significant for some people. They have a lot of coping skills. They have some resources. They got the support they needed when the difficult thing happened. 
And that's really kind of where services and resources and community support come in is you can buffer the effects of trauma when people understand and they have the information they need, when they have the skills to help with recovery and they have the resources and they have relationships that are supportive and, and not shaming or blaming. So I know we're going to use a couple of different you know, terms and terminology today. So, I, you know, and, and speaking of that, you know, some of the various terms that we will talk about is kind of trauma-informed care and mm-hmm. ACEs. Can you explain a little bit about what adverse childhood experiences are and kind of what trauma-informed care is and why they are important for, for like sure. myself or others to understand? Yeah, that's a great question. So adverse childhood experiences, really a term that came out of probably one of the most important public health studies to date. And so in the late 1990s, um, Dr. Vincent Valetti and Dr. Robert Anda were the principal investigators of the adverse childhood experience study. And they really started the the work to try to understand the growing cardiac disease and weight problems of adults. And what they found in the study was that these adverse childhood experience both affected chronic heart disease and relationship to food and trouble with increased weight, but also other things like diabetes and other chronic disease that are often linked to stress responses. The science is really helping us to understand and unpack that when these kinds of high stress situations, these adversities happen in childhood, it really sets the stage for both mental health conditions later on, but also physical health conditions. And so that's why the focus kind of at an advocacy public health perspective is let's reduce the kinds of stress that children have in childhood so we can set the stage for um, for better health as they grow. Understandable. And so I, I know growing up in Baltimore City and there were experiences and, and events that I experienced or even remember, you know, that I would have been, you know, kind of traumatic or um, mm-hmm. experiences. And so, you know, how does early childhood kind of shape a person's development overall mm-hmm. as they grow older and still have these thoughts or experiences? And how does that affect kind of the well-being as they function as adults? Well, I don't want to be totally negative about stress because there's always a little bit of regular, normal stress that both kids and adults experience every day. And a lot of times stress is what motivates us to do well on a test or to show up on time for work or to kind of meet expectations. And for children, that means to help them meet their developmental expectations. So kind of a motivating force that helps them try new things, learn to explore, and then really further develop all their skills. There's a middle level stress that researchers at Harvard call tolerable stress. And that is when one of those frightening, dangerous, overwhelming events happen, like someone dies, or unfortunately for children in Baltimore City, the main trauma is witnessing community violence, living in places where you don't feel safe. Children need protection and safety, particularly when they're young, because they don't have all the developmental skills to protect themselves. We're not born with spikes or or hard mm-hmm. armors or any of those things. Right. We like to sometimes think we're super powerful, but really we have very soft skin and our bones can break. And there's all kinds of things 
where we're physically vulnerable. And so the best power of protection is each other. So when people take care of each other and are protective shields for each other, that's what really helps to buffer the stress of difficult things. So when kids are very young, that's their parents and their grandparents, the tighter circle that you would call family and even close neighbors. As kids get older, teenagers and middle school kids, that also will include friends and teachers and, and other folks. So when there's a rift in any of those protective shields, that can really put kids at risk of having traumatic stress symptoms. That's what we really also want to use some of our services to be able to identify when a kid is negatively impacted or feeling the stress to the point where they have symptoms of traumatic stress. And that would look like things like nightmares, really having trouble concentrating because the worries and the fears are what you have to concentrate on because the brain is always going to focus on safety first. And if you're worried about your safety, it's really hard to be able to focus on other things that kids need to do to learn and grow. That is true. And so how do, how do, what role do schools and communities, I guess, play a part of that with kind of providing that support and, and resources and information? I guess that is an important part for a child's development to have the school resources and community to be able to help. I think really what we're learning is a really important part of trauma-informed care is that we're all in it together. And the more we integrate these social, emotional wellness services and including, I would say, mental health services into places where kids and families show up every day so that it doesn't feel hard to access mental health supports, I think that is really central to trauma-informed care. You asked earlier about our projects. And so we do have a clinic here and we serve about 80 families a year that actually come to a traditional outpatient clinic where we're part of the, the whole department of psychiatry here where we see babies to, to folks, to seniors. But we also have learned that it's really that parents want us to go to where they are. So they want this information, they want this support, but they they would like it in the Head Starts. They would like it in the childcare programs. They would like it in pre-K and kindergarten and schools for the older kids and including primary care. So we have a project called Healthy Steps where we put someone like me into the primary care setting so that we're a resource and provide mental health supports and resources to families when they come to see their pediatricians. In the first year of life, there's 13 appointments. So you really get to know families in those early years. And that's wow. how pediatricians are both trusted and and critical to like the family's uh, support network. So that's a good place to be. And we're also in Head Starts and Judy Centers. And Maryland has a wonderful network of Judy Hoya Centers in for early childhood. And that's another place to put mental health supports in for the whole family. And my colleagues here at the university are part of a big uh, national center for school mental health. So they, they advocate for that, not just here, but across the country. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm very familiar with the Judy Centers as well. And so, so you, you mentioned trauma-informed care. So that would mean that, you know, as someone who's working in the schools or, or providing supports that I am aware of, you know, being able to identify whether my youth are going through troubles or barriers, or I, I'm better informed to provide support to them if I'm, if I'm exactly. trauma-informed. Okay. Yeah. So I would say each of us, depending on what 
our roles are really can make a difference in trauma-informed care. You and 211 are doing a lot to connect people to resources and also get information out there. And so I think awareness is really kind of the fundamental part of trauma-informed care. Understanding that adversities, particularly in childhood, could turn out to be traumatic for kids. And so how can we buffer the negative impact of those adversities? And how can we respond when we, there is a known trauma, you know, a death in the family or a violent incident that happens at the school or in the community? We know certain things are already traumas. And so being able to respond to them, we can really prevent negative traumatic stress symptoms uh, down the road if we can really address them early on. So awareness is one. And then resources and critical relationships. That's why being there is so important. If you can already be a trusted person in the community or the school or the pediatric office, people know to turn to you when there's a concern. Relationships are critical to trauma-informed care. Okay. So so really anyone can can be in, or provide trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. One of the kind of mantras of trauma-informed care is, and it comes out of the work at the federal level, the SAMHSA folks said, we have to shift from what's wrong with someone to what happened to them. And so traumas and in mental health care, it's one of the few things where the etiology of the potential diagnosis of traumatic stress is it starts with what happened to you and was that thing frightening and overwhelming and how did you experience it and what were the effects of it? And so really, it's it's really critical to get that question in your mind. What happened to that person mm-hmm. and how then do I want to respond with compassion and empathy and information and resources to help them with their recovery? That's a, a very powerful way to look at it. You touched on some of the approaches that you take, but can you highlight some of the other innovative you know, treatment approaches that you know, you've seen or utilizing to help address some of the mental health concerns? I feel very lucky to have been part of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network for quite a while now. And I would say that's really influenced both my career and my understanding of traumatic stress. So for example, when there was the tragic shootings in Brooklyn, we were able to respond with resources for responders, how to talk with young kids about scary things that happened in their neighborhood, how to talk with teenagers, what to look for, how to help parents uh, be able to monitor their kids' uh, reaction to what happened. So I'd say that's one is like, I, I definitely use the resources of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network so that I can get as much information out to everyone as I can. The next is then how to um, how to respond. So both teaching uh, other professionals about trauma, what to look for, what are the signs and symptoms of traumatic stress and how can you access help? And then to be fortunate enough to be on the help side. So we provide evidence-based trauma treatments for very young kids and their parents and in our child service line here for older kids as well. And I'm really proud to say that because of the collaboration of families and researchers 
and clinicians, we've really been able to move the field forward and we have good evidence for therapies that work and really reduce trauma symptoms. And kids recover very quickly. And one of the things we find is that parents have had those ACEs that we talked about earlier and maybe traumatic events happen in their adulthood. And so we need many more services for the parents. Parents always want to get their kids what they need first. But what we notice is that we need to do a better job in trying to get them the services and resources that they need because they can't quite take care of their kids if they don't take care of themselves. Mentioning self-care and taking care of themselves and you mentioned providing help for the caregivers. Like what, mm-hmm. what importance does self-care you know, take for those who are you know, yourself that are providing these services and supports and hearing and seeing this information on a daily basis? Like what, what do you do and how do, is important to that for those who are giving in this work? I would say that was the biggest lesson out of the COVID-19 pandemic years. You know, when we saw our first responders and our colleagues here at the hospital really taking heroic efforts to, to help people and to help the community at large, we saw families working both out in the community. So many of the families that, that we see here in our clinic are holding down two and three jobs, and they're often the caregivers in childcare programs or in nursing homes. So they're really keeping things going. We really learned a lot from looking at the levels of stress that they were under. So how did one recognize, you know, the importance of their work and gratitude, I think is really an important part of self-care, not only for myself stepping back and thinking what I'm grateful for, but also expressing gratitude to others. I think that those things are kind of fundamental. There's a lot of people that are experts in breath work and mindfulness, and I've learned a lot from them about how they apply that both for themselves and also the people that they're they're working with. But I think it also happens at a bigger level too. And I think I think we're really in the beginnings of that, but how agencies and programs and state governments think about policies and practices. One of the biggest things is is families need time off to take care of other family members. Mm -hmm. So thinking through those things and what are equitable policies and practices. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And so, you know, are are there cultural factors that, you know, impact how mental health is, is perceived and addressed in communities or how services are provided. I know mental health is everyone. Right? We, yeah. we all may experience it some something differently in a different way. But me being African-American male and, and here in Maryland or some of our community members where English may not be a first language. Do you see many differences in the way services are provided or available? I do. Unfortunately, there's lots of research about equity concerns for communities of color. And I do think that also for good reasons, People of color are concerned about relationships with institutions and institutions that its mission is to help. But in the past, people have experienced discrimination or racism. So I think some of the positive movements, and I can say a couple of good policies that are happening in Maryland, there is a rise in the behavioral health side for recovery programs. 
peer-to-peer support and are really valued members of those teams. And now there's even ways, I think just this spring, opening up ways to bill for those services. So that's a real recognition that peer-to-peer providers are integral to that service line. Another is some uh, real interest in integrating care, behavioral health care into various primary care and other medical settings. And I think we're going to probably see some movement in that in the next couple of years. And there's some policies that are being looked into around that. Understanding how fundamental mental health is. And we have had policy barriers that made that hard to bill and to be able to sustain someone in those programs. So a particular point of pride for our team is that we worked really closely with Maryland Medicaid and Behavioral Health Administration and the Maryland Family Network to advocate for enhanced code for the Healthy Steps model. That means that it can spread and be sustained and have much more access across the state. So we have the only two right now, and we know of, I think, seven more that are opening because of that code. As we are winding down, and I, I definitely appreciate all this wonderful information, how, how can Marylanders interested in supporting your work learn more about the programs and training opportunities that you will provide? Certainly, if they ever have concerns about wanting services for children's mental health, they can just email me and I'll, I'll help them get connected. We do a lot of that work for our colleagues. We have many programs here at the University of Maryland that can help people connect to services. And if it's not our services, we work really collaboratively with other mental health people across the state. Uh, So that's one. In terms of more at the community level that really gets back to the idea of the peer support folks, is really finding more and more opportunities to work with community anchors or community partners. We work closely with the Thriving Community Collaborative that Eliza Cooper leads with other community members. So I think the more we can integrate into community programs as they open their doors to us and we can walk through them and be a good partner providing resources or services, writing grants together to bring these services, not just to the community, but have the community lead them, I think is really kind of the next wave of important work in trauma-informed care. So my email is k-c-o-n-n-o-r-s at s-o-m dot u-m-a-r-y-l-a-n-d dot e-d-u. Thank you. And so in, in closing, is there anything else? We'll give you a final word. Is there anything else you would like to share or just for us to know as we continue our work in this, in this area? I think I'll just end with gratitude. Gratitude to the increasing partnership with 211. Gratitude towards the trauma-informed efforts, including the trauma-informed commission and, and the things that are unfolding from people collaborating And being brave enough to talk about a topic that was once taboo, mental health services and talking about traumas. What we know from families is that though it's hard to talk about traumas, they want to be able to talk about it and get resources and supports around it. So I think uh, we're starting to build those bridges. Thank you. And Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate the partnership. Gratitude is the right word and definitely look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Quentin. Thank you for listening and subscribing to What's the 211 podcast. We are here for you 24-7. 
365 days a year simply by calling 211. Also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at 211 Maryland or at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.